Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to Paul Williams, who is an Associate Professor in the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Science at Griffith University, and he is also the author of a monograph on John Gorton, Australian to the Boot Heels, which was published about 18 months ago. And this podcast is a part of a series we are doing on the successes of Menzies. So Paul, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast today to discuss your thoughts on John Gorton. Thank you, Georgine. It's a real privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I was... um, we were just saying before, I was really enjoying learning more about John Gorton, who is, a, as you were saying, a bit of a polarising figure. But what is fascinating, I think, to start with, is his childhood. One of the, the many Prime Ministers of Australia who loses a parent young in life and, uh, and there's theories about how that changes their life direction or makes them want people to love them more and I won't get into the pop psychology, but tell me about uh, Gorton's interesting early years and background. Yeah, indeed. One of the arguments I make in the book is that John Gorton's whole life was really a series of paradoxes and uh, one of the great paradoxes is found even in his early years. So he sort of oscillated between quite a privileged background and quite a poor background depending on who he's spending time with. First of all, he was born out of wedlock in uh, at a time uh, in the early in the second decade of the 20th century, at a time when being born out of wedlock was considered a great shame. But that's something that John Gorton never really shied away from. He freely admitted it to his first a biographer in the late 60s, uh, uh, Alan Trengrove. So he never shied away from it, never seemed to be embarrassed by it, and or more or less wore it on his sleeve, I suppose. So that was the first paradox, that he was able to excel bit, despite what people at the time would have considered a handicap. He was also born to a father who was a, uh, some would say, a bit of a scoundrel. So he was involved in the nightclub business and uh, had, had various ventures, adventures around the world. So it was a bit of a bit of a um, Errol Flynn-type scallywag in his own time and who then settled down in Victoria to become an, um, running an orchard. And he had a mercurial income. So he, you know, sometimes he had money, sometimes he didn't. And whether or not he was still married when he had a relationship with Gorton's mother is still a question to be answered. You know, was John Senior, uh, John Rose Gorton was John Grace Gorton's father. Uh, was he a bigamist and married Alice or perhaps did he have this affair? But anyway, John Gorton was seemingly married out of wedlock and uh, and he was raised uh, in, at times, in a very plush um, upper crust Melbourneian society and went to very plush upper crust schools. And then sometimes he would spend time with his maternal grandparents and they lived in very impoverished circumstances. And uh, so he would oscillate between these two households. And more to the point, um, he his mother died, who he, he, he absolutely adored his mother when he was a very young boy, certainly under the age of 10. And even Gorton himself talked about the attractiveness of his mother. And he felt this loss severely. His, his father was, as many fathers were those days, um, you know, emotionally hands-off. Uh, and then uh, he was sent to live 
with John Rose's first wife in Sydney. And of course, she didn't really care for him. And later on, he met a sister he didn't know that he had. So it was a very unusual uh, childhood. And it seems to be very short on emotion. It's very short on on love, um, a very austere, emotionally austere. While, he had, while there was plenty of money, at least at times, because he was going to these upper middle class exclusive schools, uh, certainly emotionally, it was a very austere time. And so the theory goes, and I've applied this theory, it's called deprivational theory in leadership psychology, political psychology, that a lot of politicians who, a lot of people who feel that they are denied love in childhood, externalise that love onto public audiences in order to compensate for that deprivation of love and emotion in their childhood. And some people say this, and, you know, lacking a warm maternal figure in his life after the loss of his mother, some say might have driven Gorton to have extramarital affairs and to seek the attention of women. And, he, you know, it's always well known that Gorton preferred the company of women at a party and often sought their political advice when women weren't considered, you know, politically savvy people. So Gorton gravitated, naturally gravitated to women more than men, despite being a very masculine figure who played sport and drank and loved to party. So the theory goes that he sought to compensate in a couple of ways for his emotionally deprived childhood, one, by seeking out the company of women, and two, to become a politician. If he couldn't get the love to fulfil him as a child, he would try and get the love from the Australian people. And, look, I think there's something to that. I know that, um, as you say, the pop psychology of this can be a little bit flaky, but I think there's something to it because, again, if you look at uh, the number of members of parliament over the decades, over the century, federal members of parliament, you see a disproportionate number of these federal members are first born in their family. So that they, they become leadership figures inside their own family, as it were, raising or helping to raise younger children. So, look, there's, I think there's no doubt that childhood experiences shape the future political animal. Yeah, it, uh, it's fascinating. Well, Harold Holt also lost a parent at a young age and was said to be um, constantly seeking the affection of others. So who knows? Who knows? But, yeah, so Sydney Grammar and Geelong Grammar and then on to um, Oxford. He's got a pretty elite educational background. He goes to Oxford, doesn't he, and he, he meets an American. <laughs> Yeah. So so that's that's a really interesting. So B- Bettina Bettina Brown, his who becomes Bettina Gorton. How much and again this is pop psychology, but let's let's engage. How much do you think being married to an American influenced a lot of his attitudes to Britain and the the motherland? Cuz that's he's really throughout his career isn't he's distinguishing himself from Menzies, you know, I'm British to my boot heels. Gorton is Australian to his boot heels. He he has a, a scepticism of of the British, and when you read about his trips to Britain as Prime Minister, he's you know he's certainly not sold on the Commonwealth to start with, or sold mm. on on aligning Australia with with Britain. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no doubt that um, it gave him a more global view. Being married to a young American, uh, and of course, he, um, Bettina was his mate's sister. Uh, so he, he obviously knew the brother and also would have been influenced. So I think at an early age, he developed interest in foreign policy, developed an interest in global affairs, and again, leaving home at a young age to go to Oxford. And, and again, this experience wasn't just about, I suppose, 
you know, broadening his cultural experiences, but also his political experiences, because we see, you know, Gorton at this time was exposed to political extremism. He saw the horrors of Stalinism in the 1930s and, and developed an, a, an early hatred of communism, or at least the Soviet version thereof. He also saw Oswald Mosley's fascists and despised them as well. So he became a liberal in the true sense of the word. He was, you know, he, he the champion the rights of the individual, champion the rights of freedom. He was very worried about the powers of, a, of an authoritarian state. And again, many American characteristics of American political culture also uphold this about, you know, the, the, uh, the, the power of the individual, the freedom of choice. And I think there's no doubt that to be exposed to Americans and other people outside the Anglo-Australian sphere would have, would have influenced him as well. And uh, there's, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, Bettina, Bettina was a, a great counterbalance, I think, to John. And, uh, you know, she was her own woman and a strong woman. Sadly, she passed away before, long before John did in 1983, I believe it was. And John did marry again uh, before he died. Um, but this, I think this, you know, it was a very strong partnership and, and John Gray did acknowledge that he did um, uh, stray from the marriage and have extramarital affairs. But uh, I think it's, it's, it's testimony to the strength of their relationship that, uh, you know, they maintained a union for, uh, for so long despite that adversity. Yeah. Well, and, and interestingly, um, I think you reveal in your, in your book that um, Bettina's brother ends up being a member of the Communist Party, <laughs> which is quite, quite extraordinary given John Gorton's antipathy to communism. Mm. You know, it was really quite sort of a, a feature mm. of, his, of his political views. So John Gorton's, uh, as you say, he's a he's a liberal. He's definitely not a conservative. But he he goes um, after returning from Oxford to become a, a farmer, doesn't he? In in northern Victoria, he has a he, I think he inherits a citrus orchard from his father and <laughs> and goes goes up there thinking th- he thought he might be a journalist and that didn't seem to work. So so off mm-hmm. he goes to be mm-hmm. an orchardist. And and the the country party is quite big in in Victoria. Why does he? not join the country party and join the Menzies liberals. And he's, he's joining them in the, in the forties, isn't he? So he's, mm. you know, this is, is an early beginning of the liberal party. So what mm. attracts him to this new political project? Well, he was a member of the country party very briefly, very early on um, before his, you know, polit- we might say his political forms or political values were completely established. And again, like so many people, he would have just followed in his father's footsteps he would have considered himself a primary producer, a farmer, and I think probably it was more of the behest of his father's and the industry he thought he was going to end up in rather than anything else. And But it is interesting that a man who developed a global perspective and, you know, had even done things like earned a pilot's licence when he was a young man in Oxford should return to the more or less to the bosom of the family back in rural Victoria. So it's a very parochial thing for a man who just graduated from Oxford with a master's degree um, but having, as I said, he sort of toyed with the idea of journalism, but that didn't work out. He also sat, you know, the foreign service exam, but had failed the exam. You know, despite him being a very intelligent man and just earned a, a, a master's degree, he often did things, I think, unprepared. Uh, uh, and he failed at his exam. So I think it was perhaps just a natural progression that, oh, well, I'll go back to where it's safe. What do I know best? I know farming on dad's orchard. But he did join the country party very early on. Um, and uh, but I, again, I believe you know my understanding is that he he uh, saw the country party as too stultifying, too conservative, not really where the action was. And for listeners outside of Victoria, got to remember that the relationship between the then country party and Liberal Party was not as harmonious as it was 
um, say, New South Wales, Queensland or elsewhere. So it has its own chequered history. But I think that the the idea being that somehow that John Gorton was an accidental politician is a false one. Right. And I think John tried to carve out his own career and saw that the future lay with this new Liberal Party. And, you know, it didn't take long. He was elected to the Kerrang Shire, then became president, and it was only a matter of years before he was a Senate candidate on a Liberal ticket. So there's no doubt that uh, you know, he saw the Liberal Party as the pathway to success. Did he run in the 46 election as well as the 49? Um, I don't be- I don't believe so. I think he was first... still in the Kerrang Shire at that stage. Right. Um, and and get, he made such a splash on, in local politics that, you know, the the boffins in, in in Liberal Party headquarters in Melbourne started to notice him. Um, so there's no doubt that if, if he'd just walked off the farm and into, you know, Liberal Party headquarters looking for pre-selection, he wouldn't have got it. I think that that local apprenticeship that he served really sealed the pre-selection for him. And, again, he wasn't top of the ticket in, in, in 49. He had to wait some time before he'd be top of the Victorian ticket. But, of course, there was, a you know, a big swing to the Liberals in, in 49, as we know, and also the introduction of proportional representation, which made it easier for other candidates to be elected. Um, so it was uh, really a, a, a serendipitous combination of factors that allowed John Gray to come forward. And plus, and plus, he was making all sorts of... He was a very profound and very good speech maker. He, again, that's another paradox. I mean, we, a lot of people of, of a certain year remember John Gorton's having very convoluted syntax and tortured grammar and not a very good speech maker at all. But oh, really? But yeah. speeches are very, yeah. very good. Uh, and, of course, a lot of those early speeches were hardline, hawkish, anti-communist speeches. And that attracted the uh, the interests of the Victorian Liberal Party as well. So he's he's elected to federal parliament as a senator Vict- for Victoria in 1949 when there's a huge influx of new members of parliament. Obviously, the first time the Liberal Party has won an election, they they contested the election in 46 unsuccessfully. So mm. they win in 49. A lot of them are ex-servicemen, including Gorton, uh, including my grandfather, um, Alec Downer. Um, so Gorton comes to the parliament with a, a pretty, I think a pretty typical background of a 49er, doesn't he? He's pretty representative oh, so. of the group. I think so. Um, and again, that war service was absolutely important. It was worth its weight in gold, really, reputationally, um, to have an ethos of war service in, in the parliament. And, uh, and that lasted throughout the 50s and 60s. Nice, a funny anecdote about that. Gorton was never just short of self-confidence, as, as we know. And Gorton was asked in, uh, when he was first elected as a senator for Victoria, what do you think of your colleagues? And he wryly replied, not much on the best of them. <laughs> now, that, that might be a throwaway <laughs> line, but I think it, that, I think Gorton was probably telling more truth than he wasn't trying to be funny. I think he really believed that. Gorton, um, was, Fond of also saying when he was prime minister, when you know, what do you say to people who disagree with you? Because you, you know, you run, you run the cabinet like a president. He said, "Well, I always say there's two points of view: mine and the one that's not right." <laughs> um, so, so he was. <laughs> Gorton never lacked confidence, um, no. and I think that uh, that that instilled. Um, I think a lot of people admired that, um, and uh, today we might call it cocky. At a time when everyone was very well behaved in politics, you know, you know, this is the time of Menzies and, and Button and three piece suits and. You know, journalists calling um, uh, Miss, uh, Robert Menzies Mr Menzies. It was a, a time of great, um, you know, politeness and erudition. I think that people liked a, a, an Australian who, who could be um, who could stand tall above the poppies. Yeah, yeah. And he had a due to a um, accident. I think he crashed his plane, didn't he, when he was in the RAF four times. Um, he, he had did. quite a rugged, craggy looking face. I mean, quite a quite a 
lovely looking face in a way, quite handsome, but he had a kind of a ruggedness that was such a contrast to Menzies, who was so, so, um, so as you say, double breasted suits and so proper and dignified. Absolutely. I mean, yes, um, poor old uh, John did actually crash his plane three times, but he had four near death experiences because he was shot down by a Japanese Zero. Uh, and, uh, and when he crash landed the plane, uh, he, uh, uh, his his face slammed into the instrument panel, and uh. this was a time long before you know uh, craniofacial surgery. <laughs> yeah. He he was an early early recipient of pretty rudimentary plastic surgery, but on his way to being shipped to hospital, the the uh, the, the, the ship that had uh, rescued him was actually torpedoed, uh, and he was on an island off the north of Australia, living on turtle eggs, um, and he had a couple of other minor crashes too. Flipped a plane, and on the fourth time, he said, "Well, that's you know that's enough for me. I'm going to become an instructor." Um, so, uh, so maybe his, sk- his skills weren't quite there. <laughs> well, <laughs> Teach people how to crash planes instead. Absolutely. And, uh, to, to, you know, and I, I think that he re- even then he realised that the time wasn't on his side. He was very lucky in that respect. Very uh, lucky. He became an instructor. And, and one of the points I argue in the book is that I think that, um, that this, these near-death experiences also formulated and also shaped his outcome, as it did for a lot of service uh, men and women. Uh, you know, if war couldn't kill me, nothing can. And they adopt a sense of boldness. And you know, I call it insouciance. Um, so he had an insouciance towards what other people thought of him. It's crash through a crash. And, you know, which is a title applied to Gough Whitlam, who was also in the Second World War. He was a, you know, he was a navigator in, 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 the, in, in the Air Force. So I think that for a lot of service people, there was a boldness, that there's a toughness. Um, that if war couldn't kill me, nothing can. And, the, and But also this also, I think, over, overlapped into Gorton's personal relationships. He had an insouciance towards, you know, to the extent where he didn't even care what his friends thought about him. Mm. So it really was, and Gorton was always attributed with the, the song, the Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. And I think that's at the core. He really didn't care what people thought. And I think a lot of that is rooted in his wartime experiences. But, again, that paradoxically, that's in contrast to his desire to be loved from his childhood. So as I said, you know, John Gorton is an incredibly complicated man. You know, his whole life, private and public, wrought with many paradoxes. Yeah. So he, he enters Parliament in 49, but he doesn't actually get into the ministry, and you know, we're talking outer ministry, until 58. So he's not quick in his elevation through the ranks in the Menzies era, which is interesting. Does that indicate there were problems with his relationship with Menzies because Menzies would have known him pretty well they're both from Victoria Um, I can't imagine Gorton was a a shrinking violet in the party room so that may have actually that that may have worked (laughs) against him yeah Um, we've got a couple there's a couple of reasons for that Um, the first one is that there was a lot of talent The, the Liberal Party in the 1950s and early 60s had a lot of talent. You know, Labor was depleted. It wasn't giving um, the, the Liberals often had big majorities, except from '61, of course. Um, the near, nearly the Liberals were nearly defeated in '61, but the Labor Party was a divided and pretty hapless and hopeless opposition. There was a lot of talent in the Liberal Party in the '50s, so there was lots of uh, human resources from which Menzies could draw. So it was tough competition to win Menzies' favour. And the second point is, you're quite right. I think there was. I don't know if it's too much to say there was a strained relationship, but, but Gordon certainly wasn't inside Menzies' inner circle. They were generationally different, but then again, so were many others. Um, you know, even, even people who were close to Menzies, like Holt, they still deferred to Menzies. They, saw, saw, they still saw him as a father figure. They were still deeply respectful. 
Um, you know, they, they rarely questioned his judgment because it was his party. As Gerard Henderson said, it, the party was his child. Uh, it's a very brave minister who um, calls Menzies out on a point. But in, in the party room, John Gorton occasionally did. And he would challenge the prime minister to, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And when he uh, it was uh, given um, certain um, responsibilities, you know, I think one of the first responsibilities Menzies gave him was to navigate a, um, a an amendment to the marriage bill through the through the Senate, uh, marriage act to the, through the Senate. And Gorton had his own interpretations to how this should be argued and framed. And I think that stuck in the craw of Menzies a little bit. But Menzies, being the respecter of Westminster traditions that he was, you know, gave his ministers latitude. So I think Menzies was a great believer in ministerial government as well as cabinet government and didn't need to interfere in the life of ministers because they wanted to please the boss anyway. But but, so, but I think at the end of the day, Menzies um, respected Gorton, but at the same time perhaps didn't quite fully trust Gorton because Gorton could be a loose cannon and certainly could be critical in the party room. And again, it comes down to this point about, you know, I don't think Gorton was really afraid of anything or anyone and he was his own man to the end. So I think that was part and parcel of why Gorton was passed over. He could be a little bit of a thorn in Menzies' side in the party room. Yeah, and so he's eventually given his first portfolio in 58 responsibility for the Navy, uh, and I think you're right that he later claimed he'd built the modern Navy in the five years he held that portfolio, which is, you know, quite a quite a claim. <laughs> but But what he... I think he's, he's most notably remembered for is his contribution to education, which, of course, is a, I think Menzies says when he retires, his greatest legacy was what the Menzies government did for education in Australia, mm. doubling mm. the number of universities during that time, tripling the mm. number of university students attending university in quite an extraordinary mm. uh, expansion of the tertiary education system during the Menzies years. But what what do you think were Gorton's major achievements in that education portfolio? Yeah, again, it, the, the education portfolio was a, a strange beast for 1966. It was only Holt that had a standalone education portfolio and recognised at cabinet level until before 1966 there was still this constitutional grey area over whether the Commonwealth can can legislate and act on educational matters because, of course, under Section 51 of the Constitution, there's nothing about education there. So it was, a you know, a residual power left over for the states. And, of course, this all came to a head. Well, the universities, of course, had been under the auspices of the Commonwealth, even though state parliaments had to pass establishing legislation to get universities off the ground. But the, this came to a head. Education policy from Canberra came to a head in 1963 when the Menzies government said, we're going to start funding uh, non-government schools, particularly Catholic schools. And, of course, that only sort of deepened the divide in the Labor Party between um, uh, those who believed that the Labor Party was helping Catholics and those who were not helping Catholics and so on. And, it won a lot, and again, another generation of Catholic voters over to the Liberals because the um, Menzies was funding uh, Catholic schools and the Labor pol- policy officially was governments don't support private schools. And so that fell into um, John Gorton's lap as well. He had the power to do that. But Gorton could claim great success in terms of you know things like um, number of scholarships, number of year 12 completions, um, funding for schools and things like sports equipment, which, again, interestingly, Gough Whitlam picked up that baton and ran with that after 1972. 
Um, and you know, Gorton was, was a recipient of a of of, a, of the best of educations at, at the primary, secondary, and tertiary level himself. He knew the value of education. He knew it was a great liberator of the class systems. Gorton despised the class system, even though he himself was clearly, by any definition, upper middle class Australian, privileged background. He said very famously, "I'm not part or of the establishment." You know, and this is a man who was a member of the Melbourne Club. He was a you know mem- uh, who was a <laughs> prime minister. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he he reached the top of every everything he touched turned to gold, uh, but he always said he wasn't part of the establishment. So Gorton was very um, uncomfortable, I think, with class politics. He loved the ordinary Australian. One anecdote I remember was about you know he he would um, he went to a, a dance of uh, which included um, uh, Indigenous Australians at a time when you know just after the uh, the 1967 referendum. So there was certain you know, cultural and social discrimination against um, Aboriginal people. And Gorton just loved going to the dance. He wanted to dance with all the young um, Indigenous women. You know, he he really despised racism, classism, sexism. You know, he really did try and break down those barriers long before a lot of his uh, contemporaries in politics did. But at the same time, he also held some fairly paternalistic attitudes towards people who were different as well. Again, just adds another paradox. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, you know, ultimately people are of their day, aren't they? Um, There are lots of criticisms levelled against Menzies, but I think you've got to consider the prevailing view at the time uh, and, and, you know, Menzies reflected on on race and immigration, the uh, women, a lot of the prevailing views of the time and you can judge people by the standards of, contemporary Australia if they lived, you know, 100 years ago. But let's be honest, they didn't live in contemporary Australia, so they they don't have the views necessarily that we do. Gorton's journey to the Prime Ministership is extraordinary. I mean, we're obviously dealing with the the tragic death and sudden death of Harold Holt drowning in Victoria off the coast of the Mornington Peninsula and all the, the fallout from that. But he's a senator. He's not exactly considered the absolute front runner, especially as people wouldn't have expected a, a senator to, to pop into the prime ministership. Tell me tell me about this journey and, and how he how he makes it. Yeah, this is an extraordinary story, isn't it? And and it's prefaced by another story that if that if the first story, your first set of events hadn't occurred, the second set of events wouldn't have occurred. Very late sixty seven, we know that Harold Holt's getting tired, he's losing popularity. The Liberals did quite poorly in the Senate, half Senate election in nineteen sixty seven. And one of the one of the things that uh, Harold Holt does as a circuit breaker is to point John Gorton as government leader in the Senate because he's got a reputation of being articulate, being a bit of a head kicker, getting things done. He's becoming a powerful man not to be messed with, and Harold Holt recognises this. And pretty much the t- same time as he's appointed, the government's undergoing arguably its biggest crisis. So, again, the Holt government's less than two years old, and it's 66, of course, it won its biggest majority, That you know, the Liberals' biggest majority ever, and the Labor Party was completely dejected. 67, first part of 67, still going okay, but by the second half of 67, the wheels start coming off the Holt government, and Holt himself was getting very nervous and anxious and uh, losing control. And one of the things that's destabilising the Holt government is uh, the Prime Minister and his Air Minister, Peter Housen's insistence, that certain VIP flight manifests do not exist. The Labor Party is calling for the tabling of a number of documents, the VIP flight manifests about how politicians can hop on a VIP aircraft and go anywhere they want. And this is at a time when Australians were starting to think, oh, Polly's got their snouts in the trough, privileged elites, we don't like it. So Labor thinks they can smell blood in the water by going after 
and that these flight manifests just to find out how many of these politicians are getting these privileged flights. Problematically, instead of just fessing up, Holt and Air Minister Howson don't table and go further and say they don't exist. And, of course, in the late 60s, there was a much more aggressive news media. You know, you've got uh, Four Corners in the early 1960s. You've got the AM and PM programs on ABC Radio. You've got journalists asking not just what happened but how and why things happened, becoming much more aggressive. And, of course, the news media won't let this go. They've got a bone in their teeth. And John Gorton, who's just been appointed to the post of government leader in the Senate for nine days, actually um, says, we're going to die in the ditch over this, and this issue is not worth dying in the ditch. I'm going to find those documents and I'm going to table them. And he did. And it was enormously embarrassing to Harold Holt and Peter Housen in the short term. Well, we don't know how more embarrassing it would be for Harold Holt because, unfortunately, he died just weeks later. But what it did do is it killed the issue dead. Yes, Labor did score some points on the day, but in the weeks and months after, it was a forgotten issue. So John Gorton did what you know what we do in you know, modern PR. You own the problem, you get ahead of the story, and you kill it dead. You don't mm. lie and deny. That's old PR. New PR is to fess up, apologise and fix it and move on. And so John Gorton was acutely aware of that. Now, because he had so sensationally tabled these documents and almost in defiance of his own prime minister, he was all over the television, radio and newspaper coverage. So therefore, he became one of the most recognisable Australian faces in virtually no time at all. So he went from a junior minister to government uh, government leader in the Senate to prime ministerial candidate in the space of a couple of months. Amazing. Um, yeah. It was amazing. And again, it was compromised, though. Um, when Harold Holt did die, John Gorton made no secret that he would love the top job. But again, he was an outsider. He was relatively junior in the pecking order. And um, William McMahon was deputy leader. He was the next logical cab off the rank. And also he had a rival in Paul Hasluck, who was a very senior minister and very much like the in the Menzies mould. So a lot of people thought it would be Billy McMahon or, or Paul Hasluck. Well, interestingly, the country party leader, Jack McEwen, a very dour, firm and stern figure, said, I will not serve in any cabinet headed by Billy McMahon. Now, there's been lots of allegations over the years that Billy McMahon was a leaker to the press and undermined his cabinet colleagues, plus Black uh, McEwen was a trade protectionist. Billy McMahon was a free trader. They absolutely despised each other. And this was a kind of early political or constitutional crisis. It was a big scandal at the time. And so McMahon was knocked out. So it was really between Paul Hasluck, the senior, and John Gorton, the junior. And, of course, there was you know, a couple of others like Billy Stedden, who was seen as too young and inexperienced. And what happened was that Again, John Gorton was a political pragmatist with modern thinking. He knew that to win your colleagues' support for the prime ministership, you have to court them. You have to lobby them. Mm. Whereas Paul Hasluck was old school. He said, I don't need to do any of that rubbish. My, my, my reputation speaks for itself. But that's not enough in politics. You need to convince people. Yeah. So, And again, the, the allegation was that even at Holt's funeral, John Gorton was talking to people, whispering to them about the need for a strong leader like him. So when it came to the ballots, John Gorton did win convincingly in January of, of, uh, of um, 68. And uh, interestingly, he actually was still a senator for a few days. So that's under convention. That's not allowed. But uh, he didn't resign his Senate position for a few days until after he was sworn in. And, of course, he was Prime Minister then without a seat in either house until the by-election in Harold Holt's, Holt, Holt's old seat of Higgins. So Lucky you won it. Liberal Party yeah, just yeah. lost the seat of Higgins the other day. so <laughs> that, that would be very interesting, wouldn't it? What would have would happened? Have been very Interestingly, John Gorton actually got a swing, a primary swing to him mm. and a big swing to him uh, in that by-election 
which is something you'd barely seen a swing to governments in a by-election anyway. And it was a massive field. So um, so there must have been an enthusiasm that this guy we like. Yeah. This guy is different. This guy is a refreshing change of direction. So John Gorton throughout 1968 was enormously popular. And there was a lot of speculation that he would call an election towards the end of 68, which would be 12 months early. And had he done so, Australian history would have been changed. He would have won that election easily. Gotham would have been beaten and maybe the Labor Party would have changed leaders yeah. thinking that Gotham was unelectable. But the fact that he didn't call that election, despite great expectation, meant journalists also then thought this guy's a bit flaky. He said he was going to call an election. He didn't. Um, and that's so in 69, the media starts to become quite mm. uh, critical of Gorton as well. So 69 was a dream year for Gorton. 69, the wheels start to come off. And it... What were his major policy differences from his predecessors? I mean, you talk of, of Gortonism. Um, mm. he, he believed much more in the sort of centralisation of power. He thought the states, you know, had, had their day and mm. um, perhaps um, maybe if he'd stayed on longer, we would have seen some sort of uh, reform of the federation there. But he, he had quite a different approach, didn't he, from his, um, his predecessors when it came to a range of policies? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, um, I talk about Gortonism in the book, but, again, we've got to remember that it's not a political science term, really. It is a, <laughs> it's something that journalists, journalists invented yeah. Yeah. Um, at the time. You know, Gortonism, this, uh, this man coming in, putting his stamp um, on Australian politics. So, um, so what is Gortonism? Gortonism, I think, is a combination. I call it an attempt at transformational leadership. And in politics, not just Australian politics, but in politics, we talk about transformational versus transactional. Transactional leadership really is just getting through the day with a short-term vision about getting through the end of the media cycle and trying to win the next election, doing a business deal with voters, giving the voters just enough what they need in order for us to give them, for them to give us their vote at the next election. And nothing else really changes. Most politicians are transactional. Mm. Occasionally you see a politician who says, I want to do more than that. I want to leave this country a better place. I want to change society. I want to transform it. And in so doing, they, they, they have to disrupt certain, what Graham Little calls disrupt the ensemble, disrupt the status quo. And that, of course, that ruffles feathers. And John Gorton did ruffle a lot of feathers, especially in the Liberal Party. I think John Gorton had more enemies in the Liberal Party than outside it. And the Liberal establishment, the Conservative Liberals, the the uh, the Paul Haslucks and so on, the Peter Housens really uh, and uh, despise uh, John Gorton for that. So Gortonism is a transformational approach to change the country, which moulds a whole range of small L social liberal policy issues with, as you say, a desire for centralising authority. So the smaller issues you talked about were things like things we've already talked about. He wanted to engage in the arts. Not many people know, for example, that John Gorton was a, a poet and he had poetry published. Um, and yet to listen to him, he sounded like a guy, he said he'd like the guy who liked a beer and to sit down and watch Westerns on TV. So he <laughs> tried to convince people that he was uncultured, but in reality he was very cultured. He wanted to help Indigenous Australians. He was a big supporter of women in politics. In later life, not while he was Prime Minister, this would have been far too controversial, but in later life in the 1970s, he championed gay rights and drug law reform, mm. which is, again, still decades before his time. Yeah, He championed... Uh, education, of course, he believed in the quality of education, getting poor people, poor kids into quality schools and universities. He was also an early 
advocate of independence for Papua New Guinea. So he started what um, uh, Gough Whitlam finished. Uh, he was a self-described owl. Now, that's, a, that's an old political trick. When people say, are you a hawk or a, or a dove? In defence, they say, well, I'm an owl, I'm wise. But there's no doubt that he started his political career in the 40s and 50s as a hawk. He finished it in the 60s and 70s as a dove. So he quickly realised the folly of the Vietnam War, the folly of conscription, and, and so on. So there was a range of so, a small L um, liberal, social liberal um, issues. So we might call that ideological leadership, but he, he also engaged in an operational leadership, how he did the job day to day, and he believed in strong central federal government. And again, he, this, you look at his speeches going back to the early 50s in the Senate, where he talked about, we're all Australians, we're not a collection of six uh, states, we are all Australians. And he always advocated a central role for Canberra. And that's why he relished the, you know, the education portfolio so he could exercise that. Mm. Uh, a, a one education policy across the country. The difference between um, someone like Gorton and uh, Menzies, however, is that Menzies too was something of a small C centralist. You know, he, he expanded the power of the Commonwealth and universities. He built up Canberra from a small country town to a big city. He expanded the Commonwealth public service. Menzies didn't want Australia to become a confederate like we, we often see in the United States, where Washington is powerless against the South. He wanted an Australia that was united with, two, with with little difference between the states when everyone treated equally. The point, the difference is, is that Menzies didn't get on the, the uh, use a megaphone to scream across the, the state, that just across the country, I'm picking a fight with the premiers. Menzies did this um, below the radar uh, and he did things with, um, uh, you know, grants to the states um, and so on, um, whereas the and Holt did it too. Holt was a great uh, belief in central central government. The difference with Gorton is that he got on the bullhorn, got on his <laughs> megaphone, and told you know, and said, "No, I'm I'm all about the, the you know, I'm all about Canberra. I'm a centralist. I'm proud of it. The state premiers can go to hell." And of course, that just raised the ire, particularly of people like um, Joe Bjorka Peterson in Queensland. Of course, when um, the Bjorka Peterson government wanted to mine the Great Barrier Reef for oil, uh, Gorton came out and said, no, the Great Barrier Reef belongs to Australia and the world. It doesn't belong to Queensland. You can't do that. But there are many instances like that. So that's what Gortonism is. Gortonism is his attempt to change Australia. And, and I argue that he, that he took it from a capital C conservative to a small L liberal Australia. And the fact that he could do that successfully, and he didn't do it alone, of course, that the, the cultural zeitgeist was changing. Mm. The tall syndrome was changing. The cultural cringe was changing. You know, Australian entertainers were no longer having to go to Britain. Australians were celebrating their own arts and culture. Uh, the minerals boom was booming. Um, people were proud of um, mining their own and selling their own minerals. So he didn't do it single-handedly, but he certainly steered that new Australian nationalism and that it was okay to be proud to be Australian. You don't have to be ashamed of being Australian. So he wedded Australian values to smaller liberal progressive values to that all of this has to be steered from Canberra. Uh, so, you know, really you paint a picture of someone whose legacy should be better remembered than it indeed is, I think, uh, absolutely, in absolutely. decisions like that over the um, Great Barrier Reef. Um, can you imagine the direction of the country if we hadn't saved the Great Barrier Reef? Well, yeah, Absolutely. And, again, it was a controversial, fairly controversial decision at the time mm. um, because going back to, I think it was 1970, that was a time when we were still thinking, you know, trees are useless. Let's knock them down and build another car park. You know, car parks are good. Trees yeah. are trees are useless. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, that was the thinking. You know, concrete is good. Concrete is modern. 
Um, and it wasn't until well into the 70s that you've got environmental groups becoming the forerunners of the Greens and so on. Um, so this was, a, this was, again, a fairly controversial thing to do. And to stand up against a state, a powerful and popular state premier like Bjorka Peterson was also very, very brave. But I, I, I think you're quite right. So many Australians haven't even heard of John Gorton. And those who have probably only know a couple of things like that he liked to smoke and a drink, that he had a war-damaged face, or, you know, a couple of things like that. They don't really know. Um, and even, even in, I've had a couple of emails from people after they've read the book and said, I didn't realise John Gorton did so much. I, they always throw John Gorton, they always say Harold Holt, John Gorton, Jack McEwen and Billy McMahon, they're the ones who did just, they were all placeholders between Menzies and Whitlam. And, of course, none of that is true. All no. four of those yeah. men made an important contribution yes. to political and cultural life. Absolutely. Well, tell me, Paul, about the way he ran government. So so he has this very famous, um, she a personal private secretary, Ainsley Gotto, who sort of becomes famous in her own right and quite a sort of figure in, in Canberra and, of course, uh, journalists really focus on her. She's, she's quite... Um, it's quite striking looking. She wears those big um, sunglasses, doesn't she? Is it? Um, <laughs> but but there's sort of allegations, and I, I think this is also part of the 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 culture of the times, the the views on women and the place of women in the times. There's a there's a view that she's a bit above her station in terms of her mm. influence on mm. on John Gorton, and then there's sort of sca- scandalous rumours that she was in a relationship with him. Tell me. What was the nature of this relationship with, with Ainsley Gotto? Well, it's been a long-standing rumour in Australian mm. politics that, um, yes, John Gorton was having a sexual relationship with his 20-year-old principal private secretary, which is a very senior position, um, basically the gatekeeper to the Prime Minister's office. Um, and so it's not a secretary in terms of, you know, just someone who sits outside and types up memos. This is a principal private secretary in the sense that they are the organiser of the Prime Minister's office um, and as it is the gatekeeper. Um, and, again, you're quite right. To, you know, that's, that role is normally reserved for a man and a man probably, you know, over the age of 45 with tertiary qualifications. And John Gorton broke convention here by hiring a woman who was only 22, who was also, that most people agreed, was very attractive, very clever, very articulate, extremely self-confident, who's called ministers who are three times her age by their Christian names, um, and who would say to people, no, you're not seeing John. And not, you're not seeing the Prime Minister, but no, John doesn't want to see you. And it was even alleged that sometimes he would say to Betty, no, Betty, um, you know, John's too busy to see you. <laughs> um, and this really upset a lot of people, including um, Dudley Irwin, um, who, a minister who was dumped from Cabinet after 69. And when he was asked by journalists, why uh, were you dumped? He said, well, it's Wiggles, it's Shapley, and its name is Ainsley Gotto. So there was an allegation that <laughs> Gotto even advised Gorton on um, cabinet composition. I don't think that's true. Now, as to the allegations of a sexual liaison, um, I think we can conclude that the rumour is false. Um, uh, Ian Hancock, who has written two excellent biographies, one of Gorton and one of Ainsley Gotto herself, and Ainsley has sadly passed away uh in, not, in fairly recent times, so she's not here to defend herself. Um, he delved deeply into this and found no evidence whatsoever of it. Interestingly, Ainsley Gotto was actually in a relationship with Race Matthews, who was a later Labor Victorian politician, and he was Gough Whitlam's principal private secretary 
or, or at least the senior senior Labor members. I think it was the opposition is Britain's prerogative. So in many ways, that's much more scandalous. So who knows what you know a Labor senior figure and a Liberal senior figure? What sort of pillow talk passed between them? All sorts of secrets could have been divulged. So I think that's far more interesting, salacious, <laughs> isn't it? Um, but there's no doubt that got that uh, that uh, John Gorton did have an eye for women. Uh, he did admit having um, again extramarital affairs, as I said. And um, there are a couple of other occasions in where um, Gorton seemed to have embarrassed himself or caused unnecessary scandal. One was when Lisa Minnelli, Judy Garland's yep. daughter, came to Australia and performed at the Checkers nightclub. And Gorton went backstage afterwards and just talked to her. And she, again, she was a very young woman, very attractive. And this was reported as scandalous. But again, there were other people in the dressing room, so nothing untoward could have happened. Gorton was just a fan. But a much more problematic one was again right towards the end of 1969 when the wheels were already starting to fall off. Gorton's public opinion and public approval was starting to be tarnished a little bit. And uh, he had took a young um, journalist by the name of Geraldine Willisey, which is, again, part of the, the famous Willisey family and daughter of, of Don Willisey, who was a Labor senator with whom Gorton had a huge falling out with. And he took young Geraldine, um, who had attended a ball, um, he took after the ball. He took her in his car to see um, the American ambassador, and this was after midnight. Uh, and you know, what's the prime minister doing, knocking on the ambassador's door after midnight? Um, again, it was something to do with um, American bombing of Vietnam. Like an, the prime minister needed an urgent update. What's he doing, bringing a journalist, like a young woman journalist, something at the age of around nineteen in the dead of night? Uh, and you know, so that was, and that was a huge scandal. And there's no doubt that affected. Was, it, uh, was the allegation he was drunk, or what? what? Well, the allegation well, we still don't know really. I, still, I think the jury's still out as to whether Geraldine asked for a lift or John Gorton volunteered the lift. Um, if he volunteered the lift, it has you know, some would say creepy overtones. If he, he had done that, but there's you know, the fact that they were um, in the car, he wasn't with his wife. He was with a 19 year old attractive mm. journalist. And going to, again, the most inappropriate places, a very sensitive place with <laughs> yeah. private conversations. And, again, it, it was alleged, it seems to have occurred, I think there's some evidence for this, that he actually was spent more time talking to Geraldine and, have, you know, giving her drinks than the ambassador. And he apparently had said to Geraldine um, of his desire to get out of Vietnam as quickly as possible, which is an incredibly insensitive thing to say to anyone because, of the you know, the people weren't, even though the, the, the attitude towards the Vietnam War was souring, it wasn't, we still hadn't got to the point where we had to get out now. Um, Gorton controversially put um, a ceiling on the troop commitment. You know, the 3rd Battalion was enough, and when that's returned, there'll be no more. Mm. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until William McMahon withdrew the troops in, in late 72 that we were finally evacuated. Um, so to come out and say, you know, we want to get out of Vietnam was still a controversial thing to 69. So to send that indiscreetly to a young journalist is, again, uh, more evidence that there's a difference between his very admirable ideological leadership about building a better, fairer, more egalitarian Australia and his operational leadership, which was very, and this is a word that John Gorton used to me personally when I interviewed him years ago, lackadaisical. Mm. He admitted to me that he was often lackadaisical, um, that he would, um, be, he would be late for meetings. He would much prefer to talk to a group of school children to, and, and you know, on a, on a tour of Parliament House, then to go talk to his cabinet colleagues. <laughs> Again, not to put too fine a point on it, he was often hungover. Yeah. Uh, and you know, journalist Mungo McCallum called this Gorton flu. 
Um, so, you know, he was very lackadaisical. He didn't, and again, it was this insouciance. He didn't really care about how the Australian people, his colleagues, or the media saw him. Mm. You know, he wanted to be, he didn't, he didn't see there was any difference between a private and public lives. He is who, he was who he was. And again, that's in one sense, that's admirable. But in another sense, it sort of um, gives the impression that he wasn't serious enough about the job. And I would tend to agree that his operate, I'm very um, admirable, very admiring of his ideological leadership, but I'd be the first to say that his um, operational leadership, his day-to-day management of affairs were poor. And if he'd attended to his operational leadership, if he'd shown more diligence in the job, if nothing else to win the confidence of his colleagues, he could have stayed around a lot longer mm. and done a lot more for the party, his government and the country. Well, things come up and stuck, of course, in, in 1969, don't they? So he okay. has to contest the election and they do not do very well. Um, and uh, Huge swing against them, 7% swing against them, one of the biggest. Uh, so they do pretty badly, but they win. Mm. They just hang on. <laughs> uh, so, you know, in politics, a win is a win. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, but um, soon after, he's he's knifed, and um, Billy McMahon takes takes the leadership. Um, why do you think this all came unstuck? Is it because he was just operationally not up to the job, had the ideas, but the the execution was was not there? Too many distractions, <laughs> lackadaisical, as he put well, put it. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. Um, there were. I mean, we've got to remember that the Liberal Party, then as now, had at least two streams, Conservative and Liberal. So I would argue there are more streams today, but let's just focus on Conservative versus Liberal. Certain Conservatives, you know, the Hasluck camp, were always worried about um, Gorton, at least the second iteration of Gorton. In these early days, he was, um, you know, profoundly anti-communist, suspicious of China. So he was he could quite comfortably sit in that um, cohort, that faction, but as the 60s wear on and, you know, when he announces himself as a candidate for prime minister in 1968, he actually says, I am to the left of many of my colleagues, uh, which would have raised a lot of uh, uh, hackles and raised a lot of concerns among conservatives. Um, but he obviously he did this to um, send a message to potential to Labor voters who might want to vote for him as well. Uh, and it seemed to work. You know, he was not, he was going to be his own man. So we've got to remember that even before he came to the prime ministership, many members of the, the Liberal Party room were sort of cautious about this guy. Mm, he's, not some, he's not really one of us. Then you've got, um, but I suppose they put that to a side as 1968 as his public opinion is soaring. Mm. Um, but then as you see him, as you say, engaging operationally poorly, you know, being late for meetings, um, and again, it was said to me that, uh, you know, Gorton would um, have an idea in the bath and then go to Cabinet a couple of hours later and say, this is what we're doing. And, uh, you know, so without consulting Cabinet colleagues. So he believed in prime ministerial government, indeed presidential government. Um, you know, you're expected to lead or get out, Gorton said to me. Um, so he didn't really believe in um, primus inter pares, first among equals. The prime minister's the boss and ministers do as they're told. And, of course, that upset even... The liberals mm. in, in the in, in the party room, so he did get a lot of people offside, not just ideologically because he was a liberal but a conservative, but also organisationally, operationally because he could run things in a fairly lackadaisical, ad hoc manner. And then, of course, there were the scandals, you know, being you know around women, drinking too much, 
um, picking fights with journalists, which he called slimy white things that crawl out of gutters. Um, so, you know, he, he, he wasn't very good at servicing what we call the PowerPoints. He only had two PowerPoints, really, uh, and that was um, favoured members of his cabinet. So he ran a kitchen cabinet and the public at large through television. There are only, only two PowerPoints he really worried about. He didn't really cook, uh, curry favour with the, all of the cabinet. He carried favour with some backbenchers, but, again, it was more of a divide and conquer. Uh, he didn't curry favour with the media. He didn't curry favour with the public service. He didn't curry favour with the DLP or the country party. So all of these PowerPoints need to be serviced in the coalition. Um, and if you, and at, at the end of the day, if, if there are too many people who are against you, they will, you know, the knives will come out. Mm. And, and this came to a head in 1969 when conservative critics, led by a conservative journalist, um, uh, who uh, wrote the, a book called The Gorton Experiment, Alan Reid, The Red Fox, you know, very senior figure in um, the Canberra Press Gallery, wrote a book after the 1969 election called The Gorton Experiment. Gorton was, a, was like a schoolboy experimenting with chemicals, causing explosions and didn't really <laughs> care. Um, and the experiment failed. And the proof of that is in the seven-point swing against the coalition. Um, so there became a folklore. For decades, and even to this day, you talk to some old liberals and they say Gorton was responsible for the swing. Now, of course, we know that's nonsense. No single factor can influence an, uh, an election. Um, again, some people would want to say Scott Morrison's personality was responsible for the 2022 swing against the liberals. It's nonsense to say that it was solely about jo- uh, Scott Morrison. There's a myriad of factors, mm. you know. Climate change, clearly it was an important factor for the Teals and so on. So it's a nonsense to attribute big electoral movements to a single individual. Um, but that sort of became folklore. So uh, John Gorton's public opinion, well, the party's public opinion continues to decline, decline through 1970 as Gough Whitlam starts to score points in the parliament. But interestingly, um, the gap between Whitlam and Gorton it narrows by the end of 1970. So Gorton recovers a bit of ground personally mm. in late 1970. Interesting. But the conservative forces again gather strength, and this is now led by Malcolm Fraser. Mm. Malcolm Fraser had a fight uh, with General Daly. Uh, it was a fairly minor skirmish, a bit of a verbal uh, skirmish, and he went to John Gorton to complain about this, and he wanted Jordan to, Gorton to support him. But Daly and Gorton were friends. And Gorton wouldn't support Malcolm Fraser. I mean, the two never really liked each other anyway. And then Malcolm Fraser resigned as Defence Minister in disgust and says, I can't be in a government with this man who shows such disloyalty. <laughs> and uh, and that was the beginning of the end. There were enough Conservatives who were worried about all of those things we talked about, ideological and operational leadership. And a spill motion was brought forward in March 71. And Gorton could not no longer resist. He had to face this spill motion. And the really interesting part of this story, of course, as I think most Australians who know political history well would know, that there were 66 members in the Liberal caucus, in the Liberal party room, senators in the House. And um, Gorton uh, very uh, foolishly moved a confidence motion in himself. Oh. What he yes. should have done is he should have waited for someone to move a no confidence motion because it's harder to get people to come out and say, I have no confidence. But when people say, do you have confidence, it's easy people say, no, I don't. <laughs> so that was his first mistake. The party room divided 33 all. Mm. And interestingly, a Gordon ally, the member for Herbert, was sick and absent. So it wouldn't have been 30. It would have been 34, 33. 
Um, and then Gorton says, a tie is not confidence. And as he chaired the meeting and he said, I, I have, I'm going to use a casting vote to vote against myself. And he voted himself from the prime ministership. He was, he could have said, well, we're going to have a second ballot. He could have said, and that was a, that was a ballot on the voices. It wasn't even a secret ballot. He could have had a secret ballot, but it was a ballot on the voices. He could have called a new ballot mm. um, or he could have suspended it and said, let's do this when the member for Herbert returns. But now he acted unilaterally and said, no, the party room doesn't have confidence in me. Again, Gorton broke party rules because as chair, he had a deliberative vote but not a casting vote. But he gave himself a casting vote right. to throw himself out of office. So he's a remarkable yeah. man right to the end. Yeah. Well, I guess he saw, given 33 had voted um, against him, he saw the writing on the wall, didn't he? And, Indeed. Yeah. Fell on his sword. Well, what a what a remarkable um, career up until then. I did – there's so many, so many more questions I wanted to ask you, Paul, about his post – post-Prime Ministerial life when he turns against the Liberal Party, what could have been on nuclear energy. He was a big mm. fan of nuclear energy. But we will stop there and um, perhaps continue another day. Thank you so much, Paul Williams, for such a enlightening and um, very interesting discussion on Australia's Prime Minister, John Gorton. It's been my pleasure, Georgina. Thanks for having me. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you. Thank you.